Brilliant. Thank you, Ian, for that. I think if you were following along like I was, you would have thought, yep, I get that parable. And then you thought, I have no idea where he's gone with that, right? It is um, a difficult passage to um, unpack. But once we unpack it, actually, the message is really clear for us. And actually, it's a really, really wonderful message for us to hear. So we're going to pray for God's help to help understand this. And then we will just spend, I think, 25 minutes just unpacking um, what this says for us. Let's pray. Lord, you have told us that your word is good for us, that it is alive, that it is sharper than a two-ended sword. Lord God, we pray, two-edged sword, we pray, Lord God, for your help this morning to help us um, see through what seems difficult and um, hazy and come out the other side, um, knowing better what this means for us, that it would shape us and really challenge us this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. I don't know how many of you have seen the film Gladiator, right? It's a fantastic, fantastic film. And um, in it, there's a, there's a moment where General Maximus is riding along on his horse, getting ready for battle. And he's readying his troops for battle as well. And he's the general of the Roman army. And as he, as he rides along for war, he is encouraging his men for battle, for war. And he gives this speech to kind of what they're about to embark on and kind of the, the, the pride that they should hold and their families will hold and their nation will hold because of the consequences about, about what are to happen. And he quotes from Marcus Aurelius, and he says this, what we do now echoes in eternity. It's an amazing quote. And a scene is even better than I just pictured, right? So it's, it is what we do now echoes in eternity. Is how our actions now should be shaped by what awaits. And they will shape what awaits. And so I think the passage today has that same kind of effect that eternity should reach back and affect our day now. What we do now echoes into eternity. And as, as we read through the, the parable, it is, um, <laughs> it is interesting to unpack. And so we have two points today, not three. We have two points this morning. What we're going to do is we're going to look at what the parable says. Then we're going to look at the point of what that is. And then I have a question, which kind of sounds like a third point, but I think that's where we, where we land. Because actually, there's not an awful lot that goes on. It's just one parable, and Jesus tells us about it. So what we're going to do, we're going to look at the parable, look at the point of that parable, and then there's a question, I think, that hangs over all of this for all of us. But let's just, let's just look at the parable. Look at verses 1 to 8 of this parable. It is not easy. It is a bit of a doozy, kind of understanding what it says, and then that Jesus seems to commend it. You think, oh, man. But let me just point out first, look at verse 1. He also said to the disciples, and it's really important we see who it said to, because we've been looking at this since chapter 13. If you have your Bibles, have a flick back, and I can tell you that we've not really spoken to the disciples yet. Look at 13, verse 30, um, 22 and 23. Jesus is on his way. That's where he started about a month ago. He's on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And he, someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. So someone says to him, and then he starts to speak to them. Look at verse 31 of chapter 13. 
at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, so he speaks to some Pharisees, 14 verse 1, one Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, so he speaks to Pharisees again, and he actually speaks to them at this dinner party, till down to verse 24, and 25 in chapter 14 we say, now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to speak to them, so he speaks to great crowds, 15 verse 1, there are tax collectors and sinners were drawing near, and Pharisees and scribes were grumbling, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And you have that for the rest of um, chapter 15, that he speaks about the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost sons. And then in 16 verse 1, he turns to his disciples alone and gives them this teaching. And I say that that's helpful because it means that when we understand what this actually says, we can directly figure out what it means for us. We don't have to do any mental gymnastics when we have to do that. Because if you look at verse 14 of chapter 16, he speaks again to the Pharisees who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed them. And he said to them this. So, so he really at this point is focusing in on his disciples, on the people who are believers, who are Christians here this morning. But there's plenty more that we can um, gain from this and understand it. So that's the context of who it's said to, but let's look at the content of what is actually said. There was a man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. So you have this rich man who, who has a business, and he maybe has a portfolio of property, and he maybe has a different kind of businesses that he is running, and he has a manager to kind of run all the management affairs for him. But word comes to him that he's been wasting his possessions. He says, verse 2, what is this that I hear about you? So he hears something about him and he pulls him in and essentially says, you're fired. He says, go get your account book and come back to me because you are fired. And the manager is scared. He doesn't know what to do. He kind of says, I've, I've not got the, the body to be a worky. I'm too proud to be a beggar. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm, I'm ashamed to beg. And then he has this brainwave. Verse 4, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their homes. So he starts to think in his feet and as on his route to pick up his ledger to hand over, he diverts and he goes to the debtors, the people that owe money to his boss. And he thinks, I'm going to go to them so that when I am fired, I have, have leverage over people or at least we can buy favor from them so that they will take me into their houses. It could be that he was thinking, um, that they would offer him maybe a job or something. But I think because it's into their houses, the plural, I think it's just that they will take him in, maybe have pity on him, maybe have a drink with him. I imagine it's probably networking is what he's actually trying to do just now. So he does some networking and he pulls in the people who owe his boss money and one by one, verse five, summoning um, his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he says, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said, take your bill and write 80. He gives kind of sneaky deals so that, so that when he gets out, these guys will welcome him in before he, um, as he gets fired. And listen to the surprise of the whole thing. Listen to what the manager says next. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. He, he says, fair play. I actually, that was pretty gutsy and I didn't think you had it in you. The, the equivalent now is the CEO who's in his, in his boardroom comes down and he fires the middle manager. And the middle manager with the guts goes along to all the debtors and starts making deals 
with different people. Well, the, the CEO is in his boardroom, and then the CEO hears about it all, and he says, I've got to hand it to you. Yeah, you turned your P45 into a promotion. You managed to take what you had in that moment and make do. So essentially, right, that's it. That's the parable. That is, that is everything that is going on, and we have many questions that will hang over that. But let's just sum up what it actually says. It is the manager was dishonest, and he used the little time he had left to better his friends and himself. Okay? He knew he didn't have long left, so he used the resources he had at hand for his and others' benefits. And that's the parable that Jesus says. We, we get that. We understand that that's what he's saying. But part of us is still confused. We followed what he says, but it's hard. We're kind of, is, is Jesus commending dishonesty? I mean, if you read along in verse um, 8 and 9, he talks about friends who will welcome us into eternal dwellings through unrighteous wealth. And you think, what does that have to do with it? How, do, how does it even link? Because if you look at verse 13, you cannot serve God in money. We get that, right? We just don't get how he's got to that as the therefore of this whole passage of everything that he's said for us. Well, I think two things before we get to the point of the parable. Two things that we can understand about parables that will help us with this. Firstly, parables aren't precisely literal. Okay? Parables are not precisely literal. They're, they're used to make a point. But if we were to read into every single aspect of the story, it would say things that are contrary to other parts of the Bible. But, and I think we, we know that because actually I think we do that naturally. If you think back last week, we looked at the lost sons and the lost coin and the lost sheep. And we, we read those rightly and talk about them as parables of how God has this heart that longs for us to come back and he rejoices when we do that. That is the main point that we take from it. We do not ponder how God lost us in the first place under a couch. Or that as he, he wandered as that great shepherd and he clumsily forgot to pick up all hundred. We never ponder that because we know that's not the main point of the parable. You're not meant to take every single part precisely literal. They're told to enrich our understanding, but they usually have one or two main points that we take from them and not every part. That's the first thing kind of to, 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 to help us to understand this parable. The second, and this is where it is, our, our, our head starts to scramble a wee bit, is the Bible sometimes commends unjust people who act cleverly. The Bible sometimes commends unjust people who act cleverly. And I think that's just the outcome of being in a messy world. But if you think back to the Old Testament, in the Exodus, you had the midwives who lied to Pharaoh to save some children, and they were commended for their dishonesty there. You think of Rahab in Jericho. She lies and hides Israelites. You read in Genesis chapter 38, the story of Tamar in Judah. And she's commended for her deception and prostitution with Judah. Sometimes the Bible commends unjust people who act cleverly. The, 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 the idea is that they have been wise in using the resources that they have. And it challenges us. And, and honestly, I'm still challenged as I say all those things because I think they're kind of true. But the Bible sometimes just leaves them there on the table and doesn't do much more explaining for us in that. But I think those two things will help us in understanding the point of this parable. Those two things together that we don't take every single detail precisely literal 
and that the Bible commends shrewdness of people despite their moral failings, we better read this parable. And that's because Jesus does not praise the manager's lying. He praises his shrewdness, his, his wisdom. Shrewdness for us has kind of insinuations of underhandedness, but actually it's just the quality of showing good powers or judgment. The word for shrewd here is the same word that is used in Matthew 7 where it speaks of the wise man who built his house upon the rock. It's the approval. The approval is not a reward for dishonesty, but a tip of the hat to the servant's shrewdness in that time. We've plowed through it. We've managed to get to this point. Listen to this quote to help us understand it a bit better. This is from a man called T.W. Manson. He says, There is a world of a difference between I applaud the dishonest steward because he acted cleverly and I applaud the clever steward because he acted dishonestly. Let me read that again. I applaud the dishonest steward because he acted cleverly is a world apart from I applaud the clever steward because he acted dishonestly. He used the resources that he had cleverly. Jesus commends the disciples who use what he the disciple who uses what he has in light of the end that is coming. That's the point of the parable. That is what he wants us to know. He knew he didn't have very long left, so he used the resources he had at hand for his and for others' benefits. We as Christians know the end. We know the days that we are in. So how are we using what we have? in light of it. That's what Jesus wants to ask us this morning. We have the P45 to leave all of this, and how are we living in the meantime? If you want a, a kind of illustration we will all understand, it is the Brit who is in the airport, and he has euros left in his wallet, and he has to spend them before he gets in the flight, because they're useless after that. It's the Brit who's in the airport who has to use all the euros that he has before his flight leaves. But like the dishonest manager, not in, be like the dishonest manager, not in dishonesty, but in the view that we know what is coming and should do something about it. That quote from Marcus Aurelius, what we do now, it echoes into eternity. That should affect how we live here and today. And so if you just follow along, look at this as I was getting to, we're on the point of the parable now, and it's the idea that it helps us understand what comes next. Because Jesus says in verse 8, the master commended his honest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. He says, be like the world who are better at living fully in the world. Again, confuses us. But I think, again, it's the idea is doing what needs to be done to get ahead, doing what we can, but they do what they can because if they don't, no one will. So I think sometimes he would say to us, we rely on God to do everything for us. What he's, I think we rely so much that we don't do when God has given us. That sounds confusing. I wrote it as a sentence and it sounds better on the sheet than it does out loud. That's all right. <laughs> Ignore that. Can we take that off YouTube? Um, no, I think, I, think, I think what he's saying essentially is that the idea is that um, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation. They're doing what needs to be done to get ahead. They do what they can because if they don't, no one will. Whereas we rely on God to do everything. I'm going to take that out. Sorry, this is nonsense. Let's start again. 
be like the world is what it says, but it says it in a way that we, <laughs> oh my goodness, why am I doing this up here? <laughs> what he says is because we know the end, we should act differently in light of it. Look at verse 9. This will help us, I think, get it better. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into it, the eternal dwellings. Use what you've got in front of you now so that you may be received into eternal dwellings. By, by friends in eternal dwellings, I, it could mean angels welcoming you in. It is more likely friends who have come to know Jesus through the use of the wealth that you have now will welcome you in. I think that's the meaning of the text. And his question is, how do we use all that we have in the short time available as we walk through life with our P45, knowing where we are going, knowing that Jesus will return True discipleship means using real wisdom and shrewdness with everything that we have. And so this is where we take stock. This is the kind of the last point of the question that we're going to sit on just for a wee while. We are to use everything that we have in terms of the wealth of good things that we've been gifted in 2023. In Collington, in Edinburgh, knowing what is to come, knowing one day Jesus will return call all people to himself. He asks us, are we using what we have for people's eternity? How are we using what we have with the time that we have left? Because what we do now echoes into eternity. Essentially, eternity's gong is ringing. How are we using our time? Because the good news of Jesus has to go out. He asks us, how are we using our homes for the people around us, for our neighbors, for our friends? How are we using our love, our, our hobbies, the, the gifts that we have for meeting people and forming deeper friendship? How are we using our job to speak to people? Maybe not necessarily in the work hours, but if we hang out with them afterwards. I think one thing that kind of hit me was, how are we using now for December's Christmas events. And what I mean by that is that I have often thought these are great events to invite people to, but I just don't have the relationship with them now to do it. How are we using now in advance of that to build up our friendship? How are we using what we've got to get what we want? Because what we want is the salvation of souls. What we want is people to come and know Jesus, our neighbors, our colleagues, that they might know and love God. You may have someone in your mind as you think and sit there just now. How much do we want them to know the deep comfort of knowing their maker? That they'd find the satisfaction in knowing that this world is beautiful, but it is broken in all points to their need for a savior. To know that as they walk through really difficult times that they could find strength in Jesus himself who will walk alongside them that they might know the forgiveness and restoration through forgiveness of their sins. I think six, chapter 16 comes deliberately after chapter 15. We saw it the last couple of weeks. God's heart from Luke chapter 15 is that he chases after the lost. He loves the lost and searches them out. He loves the lost and they're precious in his sight. He loves the lost and rejoices in their saving. 
We're meant to have a heart just like the Father. We, we, we often, as Christians, as we walk through life, we pray that God would look on us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. But how about the, the open arms of someone that you told the gospel to saying, I'm here because of you. Thank you so much for all that you've done for me. That person that we've known for years, the, the son or daughter that we have, the mum or dad who we've been praying for, for conversations, family members or work colleagues who we've worked with for years, that they might say, welcome home and thanks for everything you did for me. How are we using what we have now, knowing what is coming? And those are just the people that we know. Some of it is the people we will never meet. The people we help fund to go on missionary trips abroad who will say to us in their native tongue, the, the five, ten pound a month that you gave towards this led to me having a Bible translated into my language that I would know who Jesus was. Or the staff worker in the Christian Union who we pay three pound a month to help support and someone came to faith through that jesus wants us to look at everything that we have that is our wealth that is our time that is our effort that is our giftings that is our money and ask us how are we using all that so that other people might know about jesus and then the, the second kind of thing that i think that we can ask on this we we will always want the gospel to be the forefront of what we do as a church. We want people to know about the good news. I've been struck over the last number of weeks just looking through these chapters in Luke. And I think it is, how are we using what we have for the, to show God's care to people around us? I've been struck by what the, the Pharisees were accused of in these verses, if you look at Luke chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus tells them off for what they have done because they've in, they're inviting all their friends to the party. Verse 12 says this, when you give a dinner part or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And actually what we're going to look at next week is in Luke chapter 16. It's the story of rich, the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man in that is not condemned because he didn't go out to tell the gospel to Lazarus. It was because he didn't care for the poor and oppressed right on his doorstep. How are we using what we have? And I say this knowing that we cannot do anything if we put plasters over people for their entire lives if they are lost for eternity. We want to tell people the gospel at all points. But I do not think that comes at the neglect of caring and looking after the people around us, the poor and oppressed, right on our doorstep. Let me quote from Micah 6, verse 8. O man, what is good? What does the Lord require of you? To do justice love kindness, walk humbly with our God. If we do not know those who are struggling financially, who are, who are maybe really oppressed in the situations that they are, who are just overstretched, one of the questions that struck me this week is, is are we too busy accumulating for ourselves, for our wants, our families, 
our needs that we don't even know those who we can give and care for? Are we so caught up in our own worlds that we do not even know who it is we can help? But in all of this, we hold at the forefront, we want the gospel to go out. And so the question is, how are we as a church using the resources and gifts that we have here at Redeemer? Not just to stay in this building or this place for as long as possible, but to reach the lost with the good news. That is why we planted, to love and care for those in our community. How are we doing all of that? And I'll just run through the next couple of verses just as we finish just now, because this is where the challenge comes. This is what he means in verse 10. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. He says, what you do with a small bit, you will do with a large bit. Verse 11, he says that those who are faithful in worldly things are entrusted with the true riches. If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth and worldly gifts, how can you be entrusted with the true riches of heaven? We do all what we, what we do all with what we have so that people may know and welcome us into the eternal dwellings. That is our home, our family, our wealth, our status. Because everything that we own is, is like books from the library. Or like a car that we rent. Look at verse 12. If you have, and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? The idea is that we are just stewards of all that we have. All the wealth, all the gifts, all the time. And we will hand it back over we cannot take it with us and that's where how that's how he can end where he ends no servant can serve two masters he will either hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other you cannot serve god and money what we do with all that we have shows who we are following we cannot serve two masters are we loving god with our wealth or is our love of our wealth our God? Because what we do echoes into eternity. What we do now matters for our friends and family now because there is the major difference between now and then is sin and sinners. One is that sin um, that inhabits and distorts our world will one day be restored and gone. And sinners that inhabit this world, we have to go and tell them about Jesus who will return to judge and restore all things for their eternity, for their sake. Are we loving God with our wealth? It looks like knowing what we have, what we're using, what we have in light of what is to come. It looks like knowing that everything that we have is temporary. And it looks like longing for those who we know to love who know and love to enter into the eternal dwellings using all that we have to make that happen because what we do now echoes into eternity. It's a challenge, right? It's a challenge from Jesus himself. He speaks to his disciples. How are you using what you have? So let's pray that God would help us to think that through. That'll look different in every single person's life and just pray that we are not overridden with guilt from this but are rightly convicted of how we can use what we have for people's eternity
Lord God, we know that you are the one who calls us to yourself. That you are a God who never lets us go. That you are a God who is the giver of good gifts. We looked at it in Ecclesiastes last term of how everything that you've given is to be enjoyed. And this is the other side of the coin of asking how are we using these things for people's attorney? How are we using these things to show the love and care of God to the people around us? Help us be rightly convicted where your word be convict. Help us not be overburdened with guilt that the evil one would put on us to almost immobilize us. But help us to be freed knowing the good gift that you've given us and the good news that we have to share with people about the God who loves and cares for them. who, like the father and the lost son, runs towards his people, rejoices and celebrates over every soul that is saved. Help us to have a heart like that. Help us to love the people around us. And give us boldness to take opportunities when it happens. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.